righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. So we've seen already, right, that faith is what allows us to enter into the grace of God. And then this morning he says he wants that to be multiplied in the knowledge of God. Verse 3 says, as his divine power has given to us all things. What that means is he deserves the glory. Your faith, your grace, his word, your knowledge, it's all been given to us by him, and he deserves all the glory. It says, uh, his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we've been given to us, or excuse me, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. Those great and precious promises that God has given to us can only be found in one place, and that is in the Word of God. By Scripture alone, you will know what those great and precious promises are made to you from God. It says this, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust, but also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and add to your virtue knowledge. So this is what God says. It all comes through faith, by grace. You get this relationship with God. You get this knowledge and this understanding of who he is. He gets glory by that. And then, and then at the end of this, Peter says this. You have to add to your faith. What we've heard so far, what we've covered so far, it has to be added to. The first thing he says is add virtue. Anybody know what virtue is this morning? Good behavior. Take what you've learned, take your understanding of grace, take your understanding of faith, and change your behavior. Behave morally. Add virtue to your faith. Let there be a physical outworking and outpouring of what God is doing in your life. And then he says, add to that virtue knowledge. Get into the word of God. Understand what he says. Learn, read, study, be taught, be what? Discipled is what Jesus says. So we're going to pray for these things this morning. Just bow your heads with me. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we've seen so far. We thank you that you've given us clearly some essentials, Lord, some things that have to be involved in our foundation if we want to build anything that will last, Lord. We have to build upon the rock. We ask that you would have your way this morning as you have previously, Lord, that you would minister to us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us, Lord, that when we leave this place, we would feel your love, feel your presence, Lord, be directed and guided, Lord, that we would do our part and our portion, that we would be truly partakers, in this gift that you've blessed us with this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you, Lord, in song. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you as we give of our finances, Lord. And now we continue to worship you, Lord, as we look into your word and we honor you, Lord. Have your way with us this morning. We love you and we thank you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone. Throughout history, people have been mixing tradition with the word of God. I don't know why, I don't know how, it's just what we do. We mix our traditions with the word of God. Scripture alone is a declaration that people's traditions have no power, people's traditions have no authority, and they must not be treated as if they do. Whatever we do that's traditional in our church or traditional in another church, it has no power and it doesn't have any authority and we can't keep it or hold it up as high as we do with the word of God. How many of us, though, if we don't know the word of God, we think the traditions are the word of God. You got to turn me down a little bit, Zach. We think the traditions are the word of God. And if you don't read it for yourself, if you don't know, if it's not taught, if it's not preached, we methodically go through the word of God every Wednesday night here so that we know what the word says, so that you can make up your own mind. Is this a tradition or is this the word of God? You can see why Martin Luther 
he focused so much on this when he, when he uh, penned his 95 Thesis. He wanted the church, he wanted the people to understand. He looked at it, he said, look at, look at how we're leading these people. They have no idea that what we're telling them is tradition. They have no idea that what we're causing them to do, we're asking them to do, we're making them do are our traditions and not the word of God. Yesterday, I was talking to one of our men about religion versus relationship. And he told me that he was witnessing to somebody. He came to me, he's like, hey, I was talking to somebody and, and we were talking about the Lord and I was trying to encourage him. And, and he said, yeah, I go to church. I'm not going as much as I should. And he told him, listen, it's not about religion. It's about relationship. He told him that religion actually doesn't have anything to do with relationship, right? I told him that I understood what he was trying to say. I understood why he was saying that to the gentleman, but I told him, be careful. Be careful. I think as Christians, we, we, we've become aware of this problem, so we say the same thing. We say, listen, it's not about religion. It's not about your traditions. You need to have a relationship. Religion doesn't matter. Scripture, in Scripture, God lays out a definition of religion, and it includes many of the things that people rebel against. Let me say that again. We can't just tell people that religion doesn't matter because God's definition of religion does matter. And some of those things that he asks for, that he requires, that he encourage us, encourages us to do, they're part of what he wants, but we still rebel against it. Things like weekly gatherings. Things like giving into the kingdom. Things like human overseers, pastors, leaders, ministries, right? Things like corporate worship, coming in together and lifting up our voices, lifting up our hands, singing unto the, to the Lord as a congregation, things like study. A lot of people, they say, I have a relationship with God, and I do my own thing. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to worship with other people. I don't need to give. It's all about money. Well, no, if we tell you that, that it's not about religion and tradition, and that's what you're thinking, then we have lied to you. That is part of it. That is part of what God wants, and that's what he says in Scripture. Sola Scriptura literally means to allow the Scriptures to govern everything that we do. Sola Scriptura, by Scripture alone, all that we strive to accomplish, all that we require of each other, we have to allow Scripture to govern it. What you want from me, it better be scriptural. What I want from you, it better be scriptural. The ministries that we have, they better be scriptural. Our desire and how we reach, it better be scriptural. Sola Scriptura, it has to be governed by the Word of God, not by our feelings or what we want or what we think would work or what we think God would want. He tells us what he wants. Somebody say amen. In Matthew 23, 13, Jesus says to the church, to the leaders, to the pastors, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourself, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Jesus is saying this, the word of truth is not being followed. It's not being spread by those who I've actually charged to spread it. He says, you're the teachers, you're the pastors. Not only are you not going in yourself, entering into the kingdom, but the people who are trying to go in, you're stopping them and you're closing the doors. Why? Because you're focused on tradition instead of my scripture, my word. Listen to how important Jesus thinks the proper teaching of his scripture alone is and how he addresses the same group of leaders, the same group of elders and pastors on another occasion, Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, Jesus says this. He says to him, you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Think about that, church. 
Think about how many people this morning could be sitting in a church like ours, sitting in another church, and Jesus may be able to say the same thing. Listen, you've made my commandment of no power and of no effect. Why? Because of your tradition. Sometimes it scares me to think of what it would be like to be a church attendee, to be a church member. I am part of this church, but because I minister the word of God, it requires me to read. It requires me to study. And I think about all the people who don't read. I think about all the people who don't study. I'm like, how dangerous is it to not be aware that you could be sitting somewhere that is focused on tradition instead of on the commandments, instead of on what God wants? You've made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Listen to that. He's saying, they come every week. They give every week. They worship every week. But they do it in vain. They're doing lip service. They're doing, it's a facade. There's no depth. There's no reality. Why? Because it's about tradition. And they're teaching doctrines of men instead of the commandments of God. Pastor says do this. Leader says do that. The latest church growth website says this is the direction to go. This is what to require. This is what people want. This is what they should have. He's saying there's no power in that. There's no change in that and the people's hearts are far from me. Imagine the masses, churches full of people, and God having to say, man, I love them, but they're far from me. And why? Because of the scriptures. So one of the many things I want to do this morning, but I'm not going to be able to do, there's so much to cover, um, is tell you why you can trust the Bible. It's one thing to say that we're supposed to live by scripture alone, that scripture is the authority, right? Right? That there is no other authority, there is no other word or book that you can hold up to this. In Revelation, the Bible says, if you add anything to this, you'll receive all the curses that are in the word of God. And if you take anything out, you will be taken out of the Lamb's book of life. That's how important it is. But I can't go over everything of why you can trust this, but something I can do this morning. I'm going to send you a message. If you are on the church text message, you'll get it. If you're not, get it from somebody else. What I'm giving you guys is a, it's an it's a audio version of a DVD I bought. I have the audio version myself, and it's about, I think it's like an hour long or whatnot. Listen to it when you have time. Don't turn on right now and be listening to it. I see your message is good. Praise the Lord. Listen to it. I'm telling you what will happen. Your understanding of the Bible and how it came together and why you can trust it, it will be strengthened. You will be encouraged. You will be able to defend the faith. You'll be able to defend the word of God. You'll know that it's not just something that somebody decided they should put together. It'll be a huge blessing to you. I believe that your Christianity, if you listen to this, it will be changed. I promise you. That's why I bought it. I'd give it to you guys, but every time I loan it out, I never see it. I have to buy another copy. So you're on your own. You got the message. Listen to it. So back to Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, we're going to try to answer two very important questions this morning. Number one, how important are the Scriptures? And number two, what is, what is it that the Scriptures actually do? Right? So I feel like this, if we do a good job on figuring out what the Scriptures actually do, then how important they are will work itself out. Make sense? Those are two things. When you leave here, I want you to know how important the Scriptures are and what they actually do. We're going to focus our attention on what they do, 
And by the time we're done, I believe that you'll have a new understanding or a better understanding or a, um, uh, a reinvigorated understanding of how important the scriptures are. All right. So number one, the scriptures reveal God and they reveal him from his own perspective. I'll say that again. The number one thing that the scriptures do, they reveal God and they reveal him from his own perspective. We all know this morning, John 3.16, because it may be the most important scripture ever written. It might, it might be the most important words that have ever been uttered in the history of the world, of mankind. These words, this sentence, that's why you know it, that's why it's so important. It says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Somebody say amen. Those are important words. Imagine the world without those words. Imagine Christianity without that statement. When we leave here this morning, I want us all to remember 2 Timothy 3.16. You got John 3.16, you know it, you got it down. When you leave, don't ever forget 2 Timothy 3.16. If John 3.16 is the most important thing, ever said, then this might be the second most important thing ever said. 2 Timothy 3.16, just the beginning of it. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. You don't have to remember the whole scripture, just that part. Listen, 2 Timothy 3.16. Everybody say 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. Say 3.16. 3.16. Repeat after me. All scripture, All scripture is, given by is given by inspiration of God. Inspiration. What that means is that the Bible is an autobiography. It's not people telling a story about God. It's God telling a story through people. It's his story. It's his word. Every single word in this book is inspired by God. There's nothing in there that just happened to fall in there that he didn't really think about, that it's not as important as other things. Every single word, every single scripture is inspired by God. If God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, and then he gave you a book and said, I breathed every single word of it, that's pretty dang important. Somebody say amen. Close attention has to be paid when we try to read the word of God. Because even though it's every word is inspired by God, every word is breathed by him and penned with his acknowledgement and his direction, God allows people to put forth inaccurate views of himself in his word. Let me say that again. You have to be careful when you read the Bible. You have to rightly divide the word of truth because even though it's his word, it's his autobiography, it's what he wants written, he allows people to write things about him that are not true. And you have to be able to divide between when he's doing that and when he's speaking truth about himself. Here's an example, Mark chapter 12, verse 14. It says, when they had come, they said to him, to Jesus, teacher, we know that you are true and you care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but you teach the way of God in truth. They're coming to him, they're challenging him, they want to ask him a question, they're going to ask him a question right after this, but listen to what they come to him and say. It's a half truth. They say that we know that you are true, that is true, Amen. He says, we know that you teach the word of God and you teach the way of God in truth. But then they also said some extra stuff about him. 
They said, you care about no one and you don't regard or consider individuals or the person of men. You see how they snuck that in there? You teach the word, you came from God, you are the truth, you speak the truth, and you know what else we know? We know that you don't care about people and you don't care about individuals. It'd be easy to take that and say, you know what? That must be true, it's God's word, he allows it to be said, he doesn't rebuke them, he doesn't tell them they're wrong, so it's gotta be true, we can accept that. But when you have the whole counsel of the word and you read through the scriptures, John 15, 19, Jesus himself says this, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you, so abide in my love. Does that sound like somebody who doesn't care about people? In Matthew 10, 30, Jesus says, the very hairs on your head are all numbered, so do not fear. What do you mean God doesn't care about people and he doesn't consider the individual? He says, I love you. I don't just care about you. I don't just like you. I love you, and I love you with the same love that the Father has for the Son of all importance, more love than you could ever imagine. Then he says, I'm not just talking to the church. I'm not just talking to a group. I'm not just talking to a club. He says, you as an individual, we love you so much that we've counted the number of hairs on your head. I consider the individual, he says. So when you read the word of God, you have to be careful on what you attribute to the character of God when he's revealing himself and what you attribute to him allowing people to say what they want to say and think what they want to think. Paul puts it like this when he talks to Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul tells him, Be diligent. Present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. He doesn't say, present yourself approved to God, a worker who doesn't have to be ashamed because you teach children's church, because you clean the church, because you give your tithe. He says, no, what makes you approved is rightly dividing the word of truth, being able to understand what you're reading, knowing how important the scriptures are, asking for help if you need it, living by the word of God. Rightly divide the word of truth, he says. So why is it that all of history, throughout all of history, including today, and it's going to continue going this way until Christ does away with this earth, why is it that people continue to spew out of their mouths their own thoughts about God? their own interpretations about who he is, as if they're fat. And I'm not just pointing the finger, it's the same thing that I used to do, and it's the same thing that you used to do before you became a Christian. These are a few quotes. Some of these people you'll know, some of them you won't. Olivia Hussey says, I've always believed in a higher power. You can call it God, you can call it Jesus, Krishna, Buddha, Allah, I don't care. I really believe we are all a part of God. Christian Slater says, I'm not a religious, religious person by any means, but I certainly believe in some kind of a higher power and something looking out for me. I've definitely had angels that have either guided me or helped me through moments in my life without doubt. Alicia Keys says, I feel the presence of a higher power. I believe that what you give is what you get. It's universal law. I believe in the power of prayer and of words. I've learned that when you predict that negative things will happen, they do. Katy Perry says, I don't believe in a heaven or a hell or an old man sitting on a throne. I believe in a higher power bigger than me because that keeps me accountable. Steve-O, a wise man. Steve-O says, 
What brings you closer to God is being in service to others. I think any religion or spiritual way of life will indicate that service to others will lead to a connection with a higher power. And Heather Graham finally says, I am intrigued by different religions and respect them all. But to be honest, I feel the most spiritual when I am doing yoga or looking at an ocean. Being spiritual is feeling a connection with a higher power and knowing that life is about more than just achieving goals. It is about feeling good in the moment. So believing in God or believing in a higher power is common. It's very, very common. Receiving the revealed truth about the real God is not common. Most people believe in a higher power. They believe in a God. They know something's out there. They've made up their own mind about who it is, what it is, and how to engage with that higher power. In James, the word of God, James chapter 219, God himself says this. You believe that there is one God? You do well. But even the demons believe and tremble. <laughs> All those quotes I just gave you, God says, look, you know there's a higher power? Way to go. Good job. You've done well. But what does that matter? Even the demons know there's a higher power. The demons know that there's a God. The demons believe in God. When Jesus rolls, on, rolls up on them, the demons say, what are you doing here? It's not time. You haven't done anything by saying there's a higher power. But does God come down and rebuke everyone with a crazy thought or opinion about him? Does he show up and say, Katy Perry, you're wrong. Steve-O, you mixed it up. No, he just lets people say what they want to say and feel how they want to feel. Why? Because what he's decided to do is to reveal himself in the Holy Scriptures. I'm not going to come and battle with everybody. I'm not going to come and talk to everybody. I'm going to tell you who I am. I'm going to tell you how to engage me. I'm going to tell you what I want. John 17, 3, God the Son says to God the Father, this is eternal life, that they may know you. Jesus is talking to the Father. He says, this, this is what it comes down to. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. All those other quotes and everything you've ever thought, everything you've ever wanted, how you used to live and how many people live today, he says that doesn't matter. You want to know about eternal life? You want to know about salvation? You want to know about heaven and hell, that it is real, whether you want to believe in it or not? This is what it comes down to. We have to know you and we have to know the Son. The fullest picture that we can have of God is found through Scripture alone. If you want to know God, if you've been asking, if you've been praying, if you've been saying, I want to know you, I want to see you, I want to know more about you, I want to understand you, the clearest picture you will ever get of God can be found in the scriptures. Nowhere else. I can't tell you, I can't give you a better picture. Your friends and family, the people who said that they've seen him revealed in a dream or in a trance, whatever it might be, it's not that that's not true, but they cannot reveal to you the way that the scriptures can. Scripture is how we come to know God and how we enter into eternal life. We are going to have physical experiences, and that's a good thing. Somebody say amen. We're going to have emotional experiences. When we're led to cry, when we get angry, when, you know, it gets emotional. If there's no emotion involved, you ain't in a real relationship. That's why a lot of jacked up relationships, they fight all the time. You know why? Because that's the only way they know how to show that they're actually engaged with each other. 
So if you don't have any emotion in your relationship with God, you probably don't really have a real relationship. If you don't get angry, if you don't get mad, if you don't get sad, if you don't get frustrated, you might not be in a real relationship. If you don't feel overwhelmed with love at times, if you don't want to come and bring gifts, like you come home to your wife and you bring flowers, right? If you don't ever want to do those types of things for the Lord, are you really in a relationship is a good question. But whether there's intimacy, whether there's physical uh, encounters, whether there's emotional experiences, no matter what happens, we have to evaluate it and interpret it according to the scriptures. It's the same thing. Many of us thought we were in love a bunch of times and found out we were in lust, right? Because it depends on the criteria you're using to evaluate your relationship. If you have these emotional experiences with God and you say that you know him so well and it's so good, but it doesn't line up with scriptures, guess what? You might be having an emotional relationship with some demon that you're exposed to and open to. You might find yourself barking in church. You might find yourself convulsing, saying, oh, that's my emotional experience. And God says, show me where I've told you that that is the experience when you come into relationship with me. Here's one of the most beautiful autobiographical stories where God reveals himself to us through his scriptures. Jesus meets this woman. I'm not going to read the whole story. He meets this woman at the well. He begins to talk with her. He gets into this point with her where he tells her all kinds of things about herself that only God could know, right? So she's drawn to him. When God begins to reveal himself to you, you are drawn to him. So she's drawn to Jesus, but he hasn't fully revealed himself to her yet. He hasn't really shown her who he is And that's where we pick up the story. John chapter 4, starting at verse 19. It'll be up here for you guys. John 4, 19. Then the woman said to him, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. You Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you'll neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. I love it. You give to who you do not know. You sing to whom you do not know. He's telling her. He says, we know what we worship. Salvation is of the Jews. Verse 23, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Then the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll tell us things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. She's looking for God. She wants God. And then what happens? He reveals himself to her through his word. He's telling her, this is what the scriptures say. This is how you're supposed to worship. The one that you've been looking for, I'm revealing myself to you. Listen to what I'm actually saying. Listen to my words. She got to hear the word, we get to read the word. Through his words, God reveals himself to us. I don't know how to say it any better than that on on point number one. The scriptures reveal God. He reveals himself through the scriptures, right? It's an autobiography. And if you want to know him, this is where you find him. So that's number one. Number two, the scriptures reveal the condition of man. What else do the scriptures do? They reveal the condition of man. Galatians chapter 3, verse 2 says, The scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. What that means is this. What the scriptures do is they tell everybody in this room, you are a sinner. 
You can't read the scriptures and come to any other conclusion other than I am a sinner. That's what that scripture means. And when you get there, it says, why? That the promise of faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped. And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Listen, focus. What the scripture says is this. This whole book of law, that whole Old Testament, all it does is tell you that you're a sinner. By the law, sin is, what does it say at the end of verse 20? By the law is the knowledge of sin. If you didn't have the law telling you what you're doing is wrong, you wouldn't know that it was sin. So God gives us the law so you can say, you know what, I'm doing that, I'm a sinner. I've done that, I'm a sinner. I've tried to stop and I can't, I'm a sinner. Paul says this, the things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do do, which means this, it's not me that's doing it, it's sin that lives inside of me. Sin is real, and it lives in me, and that's what the law does. It's like saying this, if there was no speed limit, you wouldn't be breaking the law when you drive over 65 miles an hour. But soon as the government says 65 is the limit and they put a sign out there for you to see, now you know that there's a law and when you go beyond 65, you have broken the law. Jesus says, when I gave you my word, what I've done is I've told you every area that's 65, 35, 25, child zone, and there's not a single person on the planet who hasn't broken the law. He says, I reveal the truth about man through my word. How amazing is that? How many of you have come to that conclusion yet that God is showing you something about us as, as men and as women through his word? Romans 5.20 says, moreover, the, the law entered that the offense might abound. He says, not only do I want you to know that you're a sinner and that you've broken the law once or twice, I want you to know that it abounds. You are crazy sinners. You are mass murderers. You are the worst of people that have ever been created. From the time I made Adam and I made Eve, you have gotten habitually and consistently worse. We think that we're better than we've ever been. We're worse than we've ever been. He says, that's why I gave you the law, and there's so many of them, so you could see how easily you break them, how far from me you've gotten. I didn't share the rest of that scripture, but it says, I think it says it there for you guys. See, didn't even get it, sinner. <laughs> he says this in Romans 5.20, the law entered that the offense might abound. I didn't write it in here, but what he said after that is, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. Hebrews 4.12 the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and the spirit, of the joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. That's what it says about the word of God. It's not just some book. It doesn't just reveal the condition of man in general. You know, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? The scriptures don't just reveal the truth about man and mankind in general, they also reveal the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about you as an individual. See, it's easy to say, oh, everybody's a sinner. Nobody has been able to keep the law. 
There's nobody that's righteous. It's another thing to say, I am a sinner. And I know the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth about me. Because when I read the scriptures, it's revealed to me. When we read the scriptures, one of the things that happens is we become exposed before God. And there is a light that shines into every dark area of our life. That's why a lot of people don't want to read it. See, he already knows, but when he shines that light on you and every dark area is exposed, it's tough. It's tough to be exposed. They show us the thoughts and the intents of our heart. When you read what it's supposed to be and then you evaluate what it is for you, that's tough. When you read how you're supposed to care for people and you evaluate how you care for people, when you read what your priorities should be and then you evaluate your priorities, it's like shining this light and you're like, Lord, I don't, I don't want to see that. <laughs> when we think one thing and then the scriptures tell us something else about ourselves and they make it clear who you really are, that's difficult. It's difficult for me. I don't know about you. I believe it's difficult for you too. It's like reading a job description. When you go to work and you do your job and you think you're doing a good job and it's like the boss pulls out a job description and shows you all the things you ain't doing, Right? And you're like, come on, man, nobody can do all that. You know what the real job is, and I'm doing a good job. God's like, look, this is the job description. That little thing you're doing, you ain't really doing anything. Look at all the things you're not doing. That's hard. And he shines a light on it, tells everybody, hey, look, look at their job description. You see them doing it? No. That's hard. Listen to this, Luke chapter 22, verse 31. The Lord said to Simon, or the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. And when you return to me, strengthen your brethren. But he said to him, Lord, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Then he said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny me three times. Deny that you know me three times. Listen to what Peter says about himself. I'm ready. I'm strong. I'm faithful. I will not deny the Lord. That's what he says about himself, right? I'm faithful. I'm ready. I'm strong. I won't deny you. I'm ready. I'm ready to die. The scripture says about Peter, he's not prepared, he's weak, and he's a denier. You see the difference of what Peter says about himself and what the scriptures say about him? You see the difference about what you think about yourself and what the scriptures say about you? What I think about myself and what the scriptures declare to be true about me. And guess what? The word is always true. The word is always right. Later on in the story, Luke 22, 54, they arrested Jesus. They led him and brought him into the high priest's house. Peter followed at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the midst of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. A certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, this man was also with Jesus, but he denied him, saying, woman, I do not know him. And after a little while, another saw him and said, you also are of them. But Peter said, man, I am not. Then after about an hour had passed, another confidently affirmed, saying, surely this fellow also was with Jesus, for he is a Galilean. Peter said, man, I do not know what you are saying. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word. Say the word. Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So Peter went out 
and wept bitterly. The word is always right. The word is always true. What we say about ourselves is not what the word says about us. Here's the thing. The sooner we let the word be the final authority about who we are and what we are, the sooner we can come to a place where the word can begin to declare to us what we will become. Let me say that again. The sooner you let the word be the authority about you, who you are, and what you are, when you do that, you will be positioned where then you can receive from the word what God says you are going to become. If you just lie about who you are and what you are and what you have been, you can't pretend your way into becoming anything. Same story, Luke twenty-two thirty-two. Listen to what Jesus said to Peter when he was telling him about himself. He said, when you return to me, I want you to strengthen your brethren. Jesus says, look, this is who you are. You're a little bit of a faker. You talk a big game, but you don't walk a big game. You look like you're all about it, but you ain't really all about it. You say you want to die with me, but watch what happens. You're going to be running like everybody else. However, even though that that's the truth about you, and I'm shining the light on it, and you're going to be crying like a little baby because it's hard to hear the truth, it's hard to see the truth, Jesus says, I also want you to know what you will become. You're going to be strong. You're going to be faithful one day. Not only are you going to be strong and faithful, but I'm going to actually call you to lead everybody else. Just because I'm declaring something to be true about you today, you got to take it like a man, you got to take it like a woman, it doesn't mean that I don't have other things that I'm declaring about you in your future. People avoid the scriptures because it's hard to see that. We've been lying to people our whole lives about who we are. And we've begun to believe the lies that we tell others about ourselves. We begin to think that we're better than we are and that we're more than we are. When we realize that God has to give you that full diagnosis and then you have to ask for him to help you before he can begin to treat us, when you read the word of God, you'll read with so much of a different focus. On Wednesday night, we saw Jesus said what? Come to me, and then he said, take my yoke upon you. When you realize that you have to come to him first, and then you have to actually take that yoke upon you, things are different. When you realize that he has to show you how bad it really is, and then you have to take the yoke upon you by saying, okay, Lord, now help me. And then he will. You read differently. You feel differently. Even when you see ugly stuff about yourself, you're like, oh, God, thank you for showing me. It's really ugly. Can you get to the part where you fix it? Imagine a book. How many of you know somebody that's been affected by cancer? Raise your hand. Almost everybody, pretty much everybody. Imagine a book that promised a cure for cancer, but you had to read it from beginning to end, or you wouldn't be able to do your part in the treatment, and you wouldn't be able to fill the prescription. So let me say that again. Tomorrow, you can go down to Barnes & Noble and buy a book, and it promises, 100% guaranteed, and those who have done it can testify that it's true. This is the cure for cancer. However, you have to read it from beginning to end. If you skip any portion, you will not be able to do your part in the treatment, which means you're going to fail, right? And if you don't read beginning to end, you will not be allowed to go and fill the prescription that you need. You know how many people would be at Barnes & Noble? You know how many people would have time to read all of a sudden? You know how many people would be testify, testifying about the goodness of that book and the author and how amazing they are and lifting them up to everyone they went? You know that's what the Bible is? 
That's what the Bible is. It says, you're sick. You are going to die. You might die at 10. You might die at 20. You might die at 100. But you are going to die. It's a terminal disease that you have. And I have the answer. <laughs> All you have to do is read it. When you read it, you'll know your part and you'll know my part. And I will fill your prescription. But we won't read it. You know why? Because we don't believe we're sick. We don't live by scripture alone. We think we're okay. So number one, God reveals himself. Number two, the scriptures reveal the truth about you and I as people and you and I as, in, as individuals. Number three, the scriptures reveal the redemptive plan that God identifies for a sin-filled mankind. That's what it does. The scriptures tell the whole story of how God is going to fix all those problems and how he's going to redeem man, how he's going to redeem you and I. Reveals God to us. Reveals the story of man being created, falling away from God, falling into sin. And then there's the narrative or a story of how God is redeeming man and restoring us into a right relationship with him. The Bible is not a bunch of stories or history lessons. Let me say that again. The Bible is not a bunch of stories. It is not a history lesson. The Bible is one story. Say one story. One story. Say one story. one story. The Bible is one story about the redemption of mankind. It's just one story. God tells us everything that we need to know about him. He tells us everything that we need to know about ourselves. And he tells us everything we need to know about how to be redeemed. You know what he doesn't tell us in the Bible? Everything. I didn't say he tells us everything. He just tells you what he wants you to know about what matters most. He tells you everything you know to be saved, everything you need to know to be saved, everything you need to know about him, and everything you need to know about yourself. Galatians 3.8 says this. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, faith alone, the scriptures preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Stop there. Just, just Galatians 3.8. It's a short verse, but it says more than most of us can probably imagine. This means that when God called Abraham, he was going to be the first of God's holy people, the first of God's holy nation, right? It says that he used his word to preach the gospel to Abraham, to show him that through Jesus, everybody was going to be saved, or everybody's going to have an opportunity to be saved. Why is that important? What is the gospel? The gospel is the story of the virgin birth of Christ, the sinless life of Christ, the death upon the cross of Christ, the resurrection from the dead three days later, and the ascension into heaven. When God called Abraham, it was 2,000 years before Jesus would come onto the earth, and the Bible says that God preached the gospel to Abraham through his word. It's just one story of redemption. That's not a story about Abraham and God calling a people out to be Israel and for them to be separate and special. It's just part of the story about how God was going to save you and I. It's one story. When you read the Bible, here's what I'd like you to do from, from here on out. Ask yourself these three questions. What does this show me about God? 
Don't just read for the sake of reading. Don't just pick it up because somebody told you you have to. Don't just get into a devotional lifestyle so that you, that you want to understand everything, you want to study everything, you want to know all this kind of stuff. A very simple question that we can all ask. What does this reveal to me about God, about his nature, about his character, about just who he is? Number one, the scriptures reveal him to us. So ask yourself when you read. And I guarantee you this, you'll find something. In the craziest of stories, in the simplest of stories, in the Proverbs, in the law, something is being revealed about who God is. So ask yourself that. The second question I want you to ask yourself, what does this show me about me? He's going to tell you something about yourself when you read through the scriptures. About mankind and obviously connected with that about you. And the last thing you have to ask yourself is what does this show me about God's plan for redemption? How he loves the world. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, right? What is this scripture, wherever I'm at in the Bible, what does that show me about that redemptive plan? What does this show me about God's plan for redemption? If you do that, when you read the Bible, it will come alive. It will change the way that you read things and how you look at things and how you study and how you pray. You'll be like, oh my God, I see myself in this person. Oh my God, look at how you were planning to redeem us. When people put blood over their doorpost in Exodus with Moses, you'll be thinking about how God puts blood over you and saves you at the Passover. Everything will make more sense to you and it'll matter. So I'm going to close with this. Number one, the scriptures reveal God. He reveals himself. It's an autobiography. Number two, the scriptures reveal the truth about you as an individual and us as people. Number three, the scriptures We don't really like to read to begin with. There's like two or three people that like novels and we're like, what's wrong with you? Watch a movie. <laughs> Mary and I went to see this movie uh, Friday about Snowden. You guys know Snowden? Edward Snowden, he, he, they say that he's a spy, right? And he leaked all this information, uh, uh, what's it called? Not confidential, but classified information about how the government is tracking our phones or listening to me right now because my phone is right here, <laughs> right? And you know the reality? Most of the people that I've talked to, like, I remember the name, but I don't, you know, what was it about? And I'm the same way. If I didn't watch the movie, I knew like 2% about Edward Snowden. Now I know everything because I watched the movie. You know why? Because I wouldn't read the news stories. <laughs> I wouldn't pick up a book that's probably a bestseller on the New York Times list to read about Edward Snowden. We don't like to read. I think that that's part of the enemy's plan for us. Keep them so busy, make it so easy, give them video, give them movies. Why would they read, right? And then God says, listen, the only way you're going to get to know me is if you read. So this is what I want to tell you. 
The scriptures actually do something in you when you read. Not just externally, you heard it, you learned something, you've got knowledge now, and you got to apply it. No. They do something in you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, it's up there for you. For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, we are so excited that you heard the word, you received the word, and you didn't run out and tell people, oh, Pastor Paul, he really preached the word today, and we, we heard him, we received it. He said, no, you received it for what it is. It's the word of God. It's not Pastor Paul's word. It's God's word. We're so excited that you did that. And then he says this, not only that, it also effectively works in you who believe. Something happens that I cannot explain. I wish I could. Something happens with a person when they mix the understanding of the grace of God with faith and scripture. When you have an understanding about the grace of God and he so loved you that he came and died for you, that you didn't do anything for that, that you didn't deserve it, and there's this grace, when you have an understanding of that, and you enter into that relationship through faith. I believe in you. I believe in the cross. It's not a story. I have been persuaded. Remember we talked about that last week? When you have that mixture of faith and grace and you apply that to Scripture, something miraculous happens. It effectively, it changes something within you. You see things you didn't see. You hear things you never heard before. You love in a way you've never loved before. You evaluate it in a way that you've never evaluated before. You have desires that you never had before. Something happens inside of a person. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2 says this. Indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. We all come and hear the same message. We all come and read the same Bible. We all sing the same worship songs. Why are some crying and some are not? Why are some marriages restored and others aren't? Why are some people still sleeping with unbelievers and some people are saving themselves for marriage? You know why? Because some people are mixing it with faith, some people are not. Something is happening inside of some people and nothing is happening inside of others. Why? Because by scripture alone it tells us how to be directed, how to be filled with the spirit of God. If you just come in here, don't come in here. Mix it with faith. Mix it with an understanding about the grace of God. Understand that it matters when God says, do not be unevenly yoked with non-believers. Your life is going to be destroyed. You're going to look up when all this has worn off for a couple of years. Your family's going to be destroyed. Your kids are going to go astray. You'll have no hope and you'll be depressed. When he says the same thing about your giving, if you won't give to me, don't worry. You think you're okay right now, but you're going to lose everything. If you think you're lonely now, wait until tonight, girl. That's backwards. If you think you're happy now, wait until tomorrow and see. Mix it with faith. Something will happen inside of you. The Bible says that God says, I will write my laws on their hearts and on their minds. I've experienced that. I've read the Bible. When I got saved, I was talking to one of the brothers, and, and he was telling me how, hey, he got saved, and he just couldn't wait to, you know, he's like, one thing I really want to do is read through the whole Bible. 
I remember from the day I really got saved, the next day, every morning from then on out, I opened my Bible and I started reading. I wasn't trying to study. I wasn't trying to understand everything. I said, I'm going to read and whatever I understand, I understand. I'm going to pray and whatever happens, it just happens. One of the most amazing things as like the two or three years that it took me to read through like that, as, as I did that, I would come across things and I'd be like, I know that. How do I know that? I never read that before. I never prayed that before. I never went to a church service before where that was preached. You know how I know? Because I'm mixing it with faith. And when I get to the part of the Bible later where he tells me, listen, it's going to be different in the future after I send my son. I'm going to come live inside of people. I'm going to write my words and my commandments on their very hearts. I'm like, Lord, I know that to be true because I'm experiencing it. That's what I mean about the scriptures, being able to do something inside of you. And it just, it drives me absolutely crazy when it's like people don't want that. What's more valuable than that? What's more valuable than to be confirmed that the Spirit of God lives inside of you and that his word truly is alive and sharper than any two-edged sword? So we're closing. Worship team, you guys can come. The question that hopefully we did a, a decent job of addressing this morning is, what is it that the scriptures actually do? What is it that they actually say? The question that I'm going to leave to you as you, uh, as you worship this morning, as we leave, is how important are the scriptures? I think to everybody it's going to be a little bit different. For me, they are the most important thing. They're the most important part of everything we do as Christians. They're the most important part of what we do as a church. When we say the essentials, when we say the five solas, when we look at sola scriptura, by scripture alone, it's the most important thing. There is no church without the scriptures. There is no hope without the truth about the hope. There is no coming to Christ without reading about how to come to him. There is no salvation without reading about how to be saved. We gather to seek Christ through his word. That's why you're here this morning. We do ministry according to his word. We're not teaching so that the kids can have babysitters right now and the adults can be alone. We believe when the scripture says to train them up when they're young and the way that they should go and when they're old, they will not depart. According to scripture and by scripture alone, our kids are upstairs not being babysat, they're being taught. The Bible says that the word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. I believe that when you leave this place, you don't have me with you and you don't have some other leader. You don't have your parents. You don't have all your friends to help you. What I do believe is that if we study the word of God, we pray through the word of God, we mix it with faith, it will become a lamp, a light for your path and a lamp unto your feet. When you walk out into the world, the light of Christ will lead you and guide you and direct you. If you were to lose everything today, you could live on scripture alone. And you could not just live on scripture alone, you could have immense joy if you allowed scripture alone to direct your life, even though you lost everything. I was talking to one of the women in the church. I'm not going to tell you who she is, like for real this time. I usually do, but I'm not. She said, one thing I could never understand is how people could lose a child. And I know for me, I'd never be able to lose a child and be able to serve God or be able to be happy again. And just there's nothing that could be worse than ever losing a child. I remember her telling me that about a month ago. And literally on Wednesday night after Bible study, we were outside talking. She said, something's changed. Of course, I don't want anything to happen to my child. I would be destroyed, she says. 
She said, but something's changed. I have this peace that I know that if he was, something was to happen to him, it would be God that took him. And I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he knows God and that he would go to heaven. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that no matter how much longer I'm here on this earth, I will be reunited with him in heaven. You know how she knows that? By scripture alone. Because that's what God says. And you know how she knows that? Because God put that inside of her heart and inside of her spirit. Because that's who he is and that's what he does and the promises that he makes. You could lose everything and still have joy if you'd be directed by Scripture alone. Last one, and we're going to pray. Stand with me. Matthew chapter 4, verse 4. We've studied this in our Bible study recently, but Jesus said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 said all scripture inspired by God. And Jesus says what? You cannot live on bread alone. The things that satisfy you in this physical world like bread, food, family, friends, relationships, money. He says you can't live on those things, but you can live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We're going to pray this morning. Bow your heads with me. We started with the scripture, John 3, 16. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. The most important words ever said, the most important scriptures possibly ever written, and it matters because you have to mix that with faith. You have to take that statement and say, you know what, I believe that and I want to be saved. It doesn't matter that he came. It doesn't matter that he exists. The Bible says even the demons know he exists. What matters is if you're willing to say, you know what? I believe that Jesus is the only way to be saved. Our church is called the way because John 14, 6 says, I am the way. Jesus says it. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Not by yoga. Not by the oceans. Not by Buddha. Not by any other religion. Not by any other word or any other book. By me can you be saved. And all you have to do is say, I'm a sinner and I want to be saved. I believe the only way to be saved is through the, the blood of Jesus Christ. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you've never done that, respond to the word this morning. Just raise your hand. He gave us his word. It's not my word. I'm not trying to convince you of something. It is the word of God.